Hello, and welcome to the Think Peace Podcast, where peace crosses the mind. The show that explores the intersection of the human brain, psyche, and obstacles and opportunities to forging a lasting peace. I'm your host, Colette Rausch, and today we are talking about the root causes of aggression and violence, and specific triggers that can cause an individual to react with aggression. Our guest is Dr. R. Douglas Fields. He is a neuroscientist, an expert on nervous system development and plasticity, and an American Association for the Advancement of Science Fellow. He received advanced degrees from UC Berkeley, San Jose State University, and UC San Diego. And he held postdoctoral fellowships at Stanford and Yale universities before joining the National Institutes of Health. He is also an adjunct professor at the Neuroscience and Cognitive Science Program at the University of Maryland College Park. In addition to his scientific research, he is an author of numerous books and magazine articles about the brain, including Why We Snap, about the neuroscience of sudden aggression, and his new book, Electric Brain, about brain waves, brain-computer interface, and neurofeedback. Welcome, Doug, to the Think Peace podcast. Thank you. So I wanted to ask you a question. In thinking through your work and reading your, your books, it really reminded me of a time when I was in Bosnia way back in 1998, just a few years after the war there and the horrible genocide. And talking with Bosnian friends and colleagues, what really struck me was their stories of neighbors, people who they'd lived side by side, had shared um, holidays and other events together for years, yet something happened during the war that caused neighbor to turn on neighbor that seemed so uncharacteristic of their relationship before. So it really made me think about your work. And could you talk a little bit about what got you interested in understanding aggression and how you know, an everyday person who we might think we're not capable of certain aggression in fact can be? Can you talk a little bit how you got into that and then just a little bit about your research? Sure. And uh, that's a great example. And also, you know, the American Civil War is a terrible example, tragic example. Well, yeah, so uh, I got into this by accident. I was uh, giving, I was in um, Barcelona to give a, a lecture on my research. And coming up out, uh, out of the subway station, I was robbed. And I fought instantly to get my wallet back, which is, of course, not what you want to do. <laughs> And, you know, I could go into more details of the whole episode, but just the gist of the story is I, I found myself in a physical battle with this, this guy on the ground to get my wallet back. Now, I have no uh, martial arts training, no, no um, you know, military experience. I was with my daughter, which is maybe important. We'd had a little bit of time before my, my lecture. So I was coming, uh, we thought we'd go to the Gaudi Cathedral. I was coming out of the steps. I felt this um, slap above my knee. I had cargo pants. That's where my wallet was. And my wallet was gone. So I just slapped it like a mosquito. And within a fraction of a second, reached back, grabbed the guy by the neck, the robber who had grabbed my wallet and was turning to run, flipped him over my hip, jumped on his back, and put him in a chokehold. And there I am on the ground wondering, what are you doing? 
<laughs> <You know? laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> and um, so that, you know, and again, people need to know that, you know, I, I have gray hair. I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, <laughs> not a martial arts guy or anything. So this is, I had no idea that I had the capacity for violence and it was not a conscious deliberation. And so it made me wonder, you know, if there's something in your environment that can cause you to engage in a aggressive life or death situation without any thought, I wanted to know how that worked. So that led me into the research into the neuroscience behind aggression, because clearly we're hardwired for violence. It's under great control, but I realized, you know, here this violence had erupted in me. And so that's what led uh, me to understanding the neural circuitry that's involved. And what's new about this approach is I'm a neuroscientist. I'm a nuts and bolts neuroscientist. You know, I, I study the molecules in the cells and um, that are responsible for uh, how our brain works. And that's what's different from the traditional approaches, which have been psycho psychology. This, this looks at aggression as a behavior and all behaviors are controlled by the brain. And so this is an approach where new research is showing us which circuits control this behavior. So that's the perspective. That's what got me into the book. It's so fascinating because I think, at least personally, we hope that, well, that can never be us. You know, we, we have total control over our reactions and we just wouldn't fall in, in line with that. And so you're really talking about a human wiring system that has a different idea and has more power than we may want to think it does. Well, exactly. And that's what occurred to me when this happened, because I realized this is the kind of violence that fills the papers every day. And we, you know, violence is, is repugnant. And so we tend to dismiss it. You know, we, we will attribute it to psychological disorders. But if you read the papers every day, the violence in the newspaper, or, you know, workplace violence, barroom brawls, you know, responses to disrespect and domestic dis disputes. And it's not, it's not deliberative violence. So that's why I call the book, Why We Snap, because I realize it's the same neural circuitry when we snap. You know, you're down, the, you, you're driving on the freeway and suddenly you're overcome with rage. That's not a conscious thing. We need to understand how that works. And so I felt like this uh, violence, which is the most important and, pre and predominant kind of violence was being ignored by and large, because again, it, it's just too easy to dismiss it. This guy was crazy or, you know, whatever. These group groups of people are, are crazy or violent or something. So and what I came to realize uh, th through the research is, you know, as a species, we don't need to be taught violence. You know, we have the same brain we had for 100,000 years ago. And that brain evolved through struggle and the survival of the fittest. And we have to have violence as a behavior like all animals, most animals, tooth and nails, uh, you know, is kind of characteristic of the animal world. We have that same capability. Of course, we don't choose to live in the, in the, by the rules of the jungle, but we still have this circuitry because it's life-saving, necessary sometimes to protect yourself and protect your loved ones. And as a species, we're carnivores. So that's what's interesting is that we have this circuitry for this behavior because we need it. Most of the time, it's life-saving. And it's really, to a large extent, uh, the reason for our success as a species, but it's also uh, a circuitry that can misfire. And then, then we call it snapping. So the same thing can happen. You know, a person can engage in aggressive 
action or violence instantaneously and be called a hero. And it's the same circuitry. It's, we don't call it snapping unless the outcome is inappropriate. But in terms of the brain function, it's the same circuitry. I'm really interested based upon what you're talking about. When we look at um, violence or we look at conflict between individuals or in groups and in the work that I'm involved in in peace building, we really wonder what is it that drives an individual or group to use violence or to snap in that way? We talked about the Civil War. I'm, you know, I'm thinking about just recently what happened um, at the Capitol on January 6th in our own country. And I mentioned Bosnia. So we think about all these things and I'm curious, what are those triggers or those buttons that get pushed that might cause this kind of reaction that, that is not, as you said, deliberative, but responsive, right. reactive? Well, a couple of things. I, I wrote the book, you know, I was inspired to write the book as I, as I explained to understand uh, how the brain controls violence and, and, that, and then also how to control it in an individual. But as I wrote the book, what happened is, it, is I didn't realize that this would also account for violence among groups, gangs, ethnic violence, religious antagonism and violence and wars among nations. So I was really happy when you invited me and uh, to talk about the subject because that was unexpected uh, for me. But now I see that this perspective, uh, neuroscience perspective, has something to contribute because it really does relate to group violence uh, and violence among nations. So in terms of the triggers, that's, that, that's what's new is that if, as I mentioned, we don't need to be taught violence. We have this behavior, it's highly under control, but research has shown that if you stimulate a certain part of the brain called the hypothalamic attack area with an electrode, the animal will engage into a vicious attack and kill another animal in a cage. Now this has been known since the 1920s. But the question then is, well, what, what feeds into this circuitry to cause this response? Because this part of the brain is in below the level of consciousness. It's in the hypothalamus. The same part of the brain controls you know, thirst and feeding and sexual behavior, other autonomic responses, automatic responses. So what feeds into this? And that's what's new. New methods in neuroscience using optogenetics, which allows us to make neurons emit light when they fire enables scientists to put a fiber optic camera into the brain, put a rat, experimental rat in a situation that will engage an aggressive response. For example, a, a mother rat protecting her pups against an intruder and then see which neurons light up and then trace out those, that circuitry. This is what has become possible only in the last few years. And what can, in addition, we can engineer those neurons so that we can use a laser beam through a fiber optic cable to either stimulate or inhibit those neurons that fire and actually make that mother engage in that aggressive response or inhibit it. And you can knock out that circuitry and the mother will no longer protect her pups against an intruder. What this line of research is, is showing us is that we have specific triggers and different circuits for different kinds of threats. People are very familiar with the, you know, the mama bear response. A, a mother will protect their young with uh, you know, unrestrained violence if, if necessary. That circuit is now identified in the brain. And that's different from the circuit involved in say, praying, um, committing violence to, uh, to obtain prey or defensive aggression. So although it seems like, you know, in interpersonal inter uh, interactions or in disputes among nations and people that almost anything can cause this violent response, it's just not true. There are only nine triggers 
and they're different circuits, nine uh, situations that will trigger an aggressive response. And so that's what's new. And I think that's helpful because, well, there's, there, there's a scientific terminology for these triggers and circuits and they're different in different disciplines, but I gave them a mnemonic so that it would be easier to understand because a lot of times science is not, the concepts aren't hard, it's just that the nomenclature is hard. So I created this mnemonic life morts to help people understand the nine things that will cause aggression. So you talked about life morts, yeah. these seven triggers. Can you describe what those are and perhaps give us examples so that it'll bring some of that um, into context? Sure, um, and uh, we've already talked about one, the, the mama bear response. And it's not just women, right? Uh, a man will, do the same thing, protect their young. It's just that it's so shocking that, uh, you know, we consider a petite woman will just engage in unrestrained violence if necessary to protect her young. So life morts. Um, so that's one of them. I call that F for family trigger uh, in the life morts mnemonic. The first is L, life or limb. That's defensive aggression. If, if you're attacked or, you know, you will fight back, any animal will. So that's defensive aggression. Certainly, uh, that's a very common cause of, of uh, conflict, international conflict, uh, to defend your borders. So life or limb, a good example is, you know, Pearl Harbor. The United States was, was attacked by Japan, and that causes this trigger in the brain to provoke an aggressive, angry response to defend against that uh, threat. So I is for insult. Human beings are, are very social animals. You know, not all animals are, but we are. Primates are very much social. And our rank in our social group very much depends upon, you know, our success very much depends upon our hierarchy, our rank, our access to resources, uh, mates, etc. depend upon your rank in society. And in social animals and, and primates, aggression is used to establish hierarchy. You know, you think of rams butting heads. Um, kind of thing. So uh, we have language, so I call it I for insult because basically that, that is a threat to your position in society. That will provoke an aggressive response because you have a circuitry in the brain that was designed to engage in, in, in aggression when you feel your rank in society is threatened. You know, we duels to the death around the world <laughs> were considered uh, perfectly normal. It wasn't murder, that was fine. And interesting, it goes, it's pervasive across species, across nations and cultures. It was, it's just really deeply ingrained. Barroom brawls, those kind of things. But on a social scale, if, if groups of people feel like, you know, we are not being given our proper place in society, that will provoke that. You know, if you have income disparity and if you feel like all the resources are going, not being fairly distributed, that sort of thing, it presses on that same trigger. So that's I. F for family, I mentioned that. E is for environment, and that is territory. You know, um, not all animals are territorial, but primates are, and many primates are, and certainly humans are fiercely territorial, right? Trespassers will be shot. <laughs> you know, if somebody uh, comes into your house, um, in most states, uh, if you have to, you can use lethal aggression to get them out. And that's so deeply ingrained that we say, yes, of course. But, you know, you think about this as a biologist does, other animals would never have that kind of response. So we protect our environment with, with aggression and violence. And the biological 
need for that is obvious. That's that's our you know our life depends upon having uh, protection from the elements and shelter and and all the th things that we need to survive depend upon having a, a home. And so we will fight any time our territory is threatened. That is so obvious in terms of international conflict. Um, you know, right now in the South China Sea or. I guess in, in, in India and Pakistan, these territorial disputes are extremely serious. They're not just difficult problems that have to be worked out. This is a problem that is predisposed to cause people to react with violently and on a mass scale if, if it's affecting groups of people. So that M is for mate. Um, aggression is used to obtain and to uh, retain mates in, in primates and in a lot of vertebrates. And certainly a lot of uh, violence and aggression has to do with personal, uh, you know, domestic disputes, infidelity, that sort of thing. Again, it, it seems so natural to us, but, you know, infidelity will provoke a, a deadly violent response without any, any thought. Neuroscience is also showing that um, there's a lot of commonalities between sexual behavior and, and aggression some of the same circuitries involved. And uh, we see that in conflict and war. Traditionally, the spoils of war involve, you know, rape and either as intimidation or as the spoils of war. Boko Haram taking all of those women hostages, uh, so-called wives. So here we see, you know, the same circuitry on an individual level playing out in, in uh, groups of people and, and in nations. You know the comfort women in in, in Japan. Uh, another example. So O is for order in society. Um, again, we're strictly social species. You know, if if you're if you're uh, out in the woods for 24 hours, they're going to send out the helicopters because you're going to die. We can <laughs> we we our survival depends upon being part of a cohesive society, and um, so. How do you maintain the order in society? Well, it's maintained by aggression, same as animals do who have a social structure. It's codified aggression now. It's things like, uh, you know, taking away money or resources, taking away liberty, putting somebody in the prison, uh, capital punishment in the extreme. These are all aggressive actions that, that we will undertake and we accept them because we are hardwired to use aggression to make sure people will follow social orders. And so when somebody violates a social order, we get angry instantly. And anger has one purpose, it's to prepare you to fight because until just very recently, I mean, only a few generations, order in society and, and um, you know, maintaining the peace was an individual responsibility. There were no police, you know? So um, when somebody cuts in line, you get angry because <laughs> You're hardwired to use aggression to make that person follow the rules because in a real sense, your survival depends upon people following the rules. So that's O for order in society. But when rules are broken and groups of people perceive that, that will provoke a, you know, an angry response or even mob violence. R is resources. That's pretty obvious. I mean, we see that all the time. You, we will use aggression to protect our, our resources. You know, that, that's what happened to me when my wallet got taken. Uh, you know, you see that in a puppy. If you get your hand too close to its dish, it'll you know, nip at you. So we're hardwired 
like you see this in many animals, to use physical aggression to maintain your resources. But, you know, in human society, resources are a lot more complicated and abstract than, you know, food, but even more abstract than money. But violence will be used to obtain and, and protect those kinds of resources. T is for tribe. Again, um, we are very tribal because we're a social species. And when humans evolved, you likely knew everybody in your tribe because we evolved as uh, you know small populations. And an encounter with a foreign group was a threat, a threat to resources, a threat to you know mates. And so we are hardwired as many animals are um, to uh, engage in violence to protect your tribe. And it's very interesting. The neural circuitry that, of that is really uh, interesting and is being uh, identified in detail with uh, functional brain imaging and EEG, for example, within, I think, about less than 100 milliseconds from seeing somebody, there's a circuit in your prefrontal cortex that divides that person into us or them. So that's quicker than an eye blink. But this is necessary for our survival. You think about uh, you know, you're out on the street and your brain is constantly doing this. Is this guy good? Is he part of my tribe or is he a potential threat? Um, so we have that circuitry, very complicated when you think about it. what has to go into that kind of decision and be so quick and automatic and accurate. Um, so we do divide people into us versus them. The thing is that's learned. What is us and them? It can be socioeconomic, it can be racial, it can be religious. Um, you learn that through your experience. And uh, like all of these tr uh, triggers, these same triggers are used, exist for a purpose. And that, that tribal trigger is what pulls us together as a species. And then the final one is S for stop. This is restraint aggression. If you're uh, restrained, you will, you will fight to, to break that restraint. You know, any animal will, you know, get, the animal gets this paw in a trap, it'll use aggression against itself and chop, chew its own leg off. And so will a human. You remember Eric Ralston and they got trapped by that boulder and cut his own arm off. But if you feel that you are being restrained, you will get angry. And anger, again, is prepare you to fight. Um, on a social level or international level, that equates to things like embargoes or blockades. Uh, you know, again, World War II, Japan attacked us in part, large part, because we had an oil embargo against them. And, and so that presses on this trigger to engage in violence, to, to respond to that situation. So those, in brief, are the life morts and how they relate both to individual behavior, but also group behavior. Okay, I'm very curious. One might say, hearing about these triggers, that um, an individual who's engaged in certain violence can say, hey, it's my wiring. I'm not responsible, can't control this. Can you talk a little bit about, there's the science of it, how that works from science that may be separate from moral or other type of um, things that, that humans also connect to our behavior. Well, yeah, there's a couple of important elements in your question, a good question there. You know, when you snap and it's reflexive, you know, gone with the wind and she smashes the, the vase <laughs> against the wall, you know, or somebody wrapping a golf club around a tree and it maybe is their favorite golf club. That's not a conscious decision. So that, that's hardwired. So in a way, 
you can say, yeah, the, you know, uh, this is beyond your control because we're hardwired. That's one aspect, but you know, our actions have consequences and we are responsible for those consequences. It's important to understand the underlying roots of the aggressive reaction, but it doesn't excuse them. So for example, we understand that, you know, why people rob banks. <laughs> and so we can take action to inhibit that, you know, or we don't leave our wallets or our purses sitting out in public, you know, because we understand that, you know, why people would, would engage in robbery. If they engage in robbery and understanding they robbed the bank because they needed money doesn't excuse it um, you, because it does have consequences. The second aspect of your question though is, it's important, as I've described, that all of these, these circuits evolve to deal with sudden threats. And that's why they're unconscious, because conscious deliberation is too slow. And also our conscious mind can't hold all the information necessary to make this life or, or death situation when faced with a sudden threat. And so, you know, I don't think the people need to understand how much information processing is going on unconsciously all the time below our level of consciousness, taking in information about our environment, our internal state and concluding if we're facing some sort of a threat. That has to be unconscious for, because of speed and capacity limitations. However, violence that is deliberative, conscious, somebody has actually plotted to carry out a terrorist act, for example, is the same circuitry, but working backwards. Um, from the conscious part of the mind, then imposing onto the circus that allows to engage in this violence. And the reason is that violence is dangerous. It's a very dangerous behavior. Uh, and engaging in violence risks your life and limb. And so it's highly controlled. So through the course of evolution as a species, we will only engage in violence if it's one of these nine life-threatening situations that through the course of evolution, engaging in violence what had survival value for us. And so we have this circuitry. So even a terrorist who consciously plants a bomb on a plane, you know, or some other horrendous violent act, that can be understood. You sit, you, you know, you, you can sit and wonder, well, why did, why did this person engage in this terrible violent act? If you can look to the life works triggers, you can understand why uh, that might happen. A good example of that, and I interviewed the, the person, the Boston bombers that, the, that, you know, that actually had nothing to do with Islam, Islam you know, religious uh, beliefs. That had to do with, um, and, the, and the uncle of the Boston bombers said that, he said they were losers. You know, what, what it was is, is these recent immigrants family were not succeeding in society. They were not accepted and you see the same thing in gangs if you know if you're not accepted by society and you're not succeeding in society you'll join another group you know and so we see in inner inner cities all these young people engage in gangs because yeah you can join our group so in in that case that was you know that was in part um the eye trigger that you know uh, those individuals didn't see that they were, that their place in society was, was being achieved and that made them angry. So the conscious and violence that people engage in will also be 
have its roots in one of these nine triggers for which we have been um, wired to engage in this behavior. And I'm curious too, um, it's interesting what you were talking about, that a lot of the life morts triggers, it's an immediate, a survival mechanism. Yet some of the activities, like for example, you talked about Boko Haram and when they kidnap the girls or when certain groups engage in the violence of rape as a, as a way of power and control. At the same time, as you talked about, there's um, accountability mechanisms that, that there's a disconnect that should be between what someone might do as they are you know, enacting with what is a reactive or, or, or in their mind, a way to survive from what is okay in society. And that's a lot of this is learned. So I'm really curious if there's the learning that, that feeds into some of these actions, how does one from a you know, neurobiological or a wiring way unlearn that? Hmm. So that behaviors that you know, are not conducive to modern society and those activities that I just mentioned are, are unlearned in some way, in addition to being held accountable. Is there a way to unlearn these? Well, um, so the neural circuitry, talk about this again from the perspective of neuroscience. So um, this aggressive reaction, and it's, we're talking really about threat detection, involves the entire brain. Um, it's it's so, so important to our survival that a huge part of the brain is involved. So I mentioned the hypothalamic attack region, um, all unconscious. We have the amygdala, which takes in all the information all of our senses send information first to the amygdala before it goes to the conscious part of the brain, the cerebral cortex, because this is a high-speed pathway. So your amygdala is looking for um, um, threats. And then you have the prefrontal cortex, which is where we have higher level cognitive function that can evaluate and can inhibit the aggressive responses. So the prefrontal cortex is just behind your eyebrows and it has these uh, connections that go to the amygdala and even to the hypothalamus that will squelch an aggressive response. Now, just as an aside, this part of the brain is not developed in teenagers. It's not fully developed until our early 20s. So that's, you know, that's why we don't hold minors criminally responsible anywhere, in, you know, in any decent society we understand and that they don't have the capability uh, so they will be impulsive. So getting to your question, it's interesting to ask, well, how come this important control mechanism isn't developed till our early 20s? <laughs> and yeah. the reason is that's our success as a species. We cheat evolution because we don't live, you know, in caves <laughs> anymore. We live in an environment our brain wasn't ever designed to operate in. So our brain develops after we're born. You see a, a, you know, a newborn baby, it can't do anything. You know, it can't hold its head up. It, it's completely helpless. Contrast that with a colt you know, that's born and can go off running. The reason for this is the human brain develops after birth for over the course of several years to make your brain ideally wired and suited to the environment that you're raised in. And so if you're raised in a hostile environment, you know, dangerous inner city area or in a, a country subject to, to war and hostility, these circuits of threat detection are going to be wired to predispose you to deal with that, right? Otherwise, you can be victimized if you're too passive. And so your environment will determine, to a certain extent, how you react to these triggers. Um, and part of that is, as you said, our environment 
learning and part of that's development and part of it is also those same circuits are impaired by drugs you know alcohol and whatnot and a lot of violence has its root uh, impairing this control so that's very interesting and i'm curious has there been findings in science of ways that could help the neurocircuitry perhaps lower its responsiveness to the threat stimuli that has been learned? You know, is there, you know, what can be done, especially if we're coming from, um, you know, as you mentioned, if, or, or even if we're in a domestic violence home situation or certain areas, or you mentioned certain violent conflict countries, what can be done to, in some way, yeah, lower that reactivity so, so we aren't continuing the responsiveness in the cycles of violence that could ensue? Yeah, that's a very good question. And that's why I, one of the reasons I, make, I, I came up with the life morts uh, mnemonic, because the answer to your question is we don't want to stop this circuitry. This circuitry is not a malfunction, you know, not, we have it for a reason. And, um, you know, this is the circuitry that, that allows a first responder or a police officer to run in and face bullets in, you know, in, in a mass shooting, completely ignoring, you know, personal safety and ignoring pain and may even be injured. Um, this is, there's a neuroscience behind all of these things I'm describing. So we have this for a reason. What we want to prevent is misfires. So you don't want to be engaging in the violent, you know, encounters on the road. You know, it's just inappropriate, although the same triggers may be tripped. So the way to control it, you know, it doesn't work to say, you know, calm down. <laughs> if you've ever tried somebody, you know, somebody who's angry and you tell them to calm down or you try that on yourself, it doesn't work. I mean, uh, and that's because actually you're pushing, you're adding another trigger, the S trigger, um, and you're straining. So the key to controlling this is to understand it. So that's like anything. The first step to controlling anything is to understand how it works. And um, that, that's what I would like to happen. So that uh, take a teenager or anyone who's feeling angry, be able to say, why? Which of these life morts is it? And if you can identify it and realize, yeah, of course you should be angry when somebody disrespects you on Facebook. You don't tell the kid, don't be angry. That's not going to work. And you say, yeah, of course you're angry. You're hardwired. That's the eye trigger. Your hierarchy in society. I understand. However, it's Facebook. Is <laughs> you know, getting into a fight going to help? And you don't have to go through that deliberation because, you know, this threat detection mechanism communicates with emotion, not with verbal or conscious thought. Um, and our cortex gets the alarm and then tells us what to do if there's time, right? We're talking about if there's time to respond. So um, a good example is you're in a crowd, somebody bumps into you, you tense up, you turn, you're, you're ready to fight. There's no thought involved in that. <laughs> that is the L trigger. If that person says, oh, excuse me, what happens? That, that emotion vaporizes. You don't have to go through a conscious process of saying, oh, I think, you know, whatever, that this is safe. It's automatic. It's just been a misfire. Uh, another funny example is uh, I was with my daughter. We're getting on the plane. You know how everybody's supposed to get on, at least before the pandemic, <laughs> get on, you know, in your group numbers, your order seat number. Uh, it was group numbers. And, uh, you know, the lady in front of us cut in front. And my daughter, instead of getting angry, starts laughing. 
And she goes, oh, it's the O trigger. <laughs> <You know? laughs> this woman is violating the rules. And so she's laughing. Then she goes, just politely says, well, what's your group number? <laughs> but, you know, in another situation, because she understood, you know, that, that, that it, what was going on at a neuroscience level, she could uh, control it. But in another situation, somebody might just get angry and get in a fight. That happens. The other thing that's very important in your question is the role of stress. And that's very important. Um, stress lowers the threshold for pulling, responding to these triggers. So what is stress? We all know what it feels like, even though we may not be able to control it. Um, stress is taking in information about your environment, your situation, your internal environment, your body's health, whatever, and concluding that you're in danger. And again, you want to lower stress and there are a lot of good techniques, you know, meditation, all these techniques are great, but a lot of times you can't control the stress <laughs> because it may be a loss of, uh, geez, we're seeing this now in the pandemic, the loss of a loved one or financial resources are just moving, you know, you got these stresses. Well, it makes perfect sense that you would lower the threshold for pulling a trigger when you're in danger. So just the same way as, you know, nations go on high alert, red alert when there, when there is perceived danger, so does your body. So when you're under stress, you're more likely to have these things trip. And this is a good point for me to remember that uh, that incident in Barcelona was the second time we were robbed. So I was under stress. And I think the fact that my daughter was there, it added another trigger, the F for family trigger, and the fact that I was under stress and it wasn't going to happen again. I mean, I wasn't consciously consulted about this, but at a neuroscience level, that stress had lowered the trigger that that bandit was not going to get away. So on an international level, you know, we had that uh, recent situation in, in Iran where General Soleimani was uh, taken out with a, a drone, I guess, the Iranian general. And um, the Iranians uh, retaliated by uh, sending missiles, uh, you know, to a U.S. base. And, you know, we had... Threatened that you know if they retaliated that 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 we were going to unleash violence the likes of which they've never seen. So what happened? They shot down a Ukrainian commercial airline. The Iranians did by mistake, and they did that because they were under such stress. You know they're under heightened alert, and and a few more seconds of tracking that airplane, I'm sure, in a normal situation, would let them perceive that oh this plane is not not a threat it's not coming towards us it's it's just a commercial airplane but they were under stress lowering the threshold to engage uh, violently so um, one way to help is to recognize when you're in stress take measures to lower it but also to realize that in those situations violence is much more likely to take place and so you need to take deliberative action to prevent violence. If you're late for work and you're under stress, you've got to consciously say, I'm more likely to get into a, an angry incident on the road. And then you can forestall it. And I love what you said about understanding it. And when you're understanding it, then we might be less likely to try to ignore it or think that we're, you know, able to do anything and, and not be susceptible to stress or reaction. And I think that that's, I think of, I have a teenager. And as you mentioned, the last thing you want to mention when they're upset is don't be upset or it's not a big deal. You know, that just, that just made, you could see in the body the tension of it is a big deal. 
And then the minute you acknowledge it, that dissipates. So it's yeah. interesting that it plays out. I'm interested, you know, I briefly mentioned what happened to the Capitol on January 6th. And I think for a lot of people watching, including myself, watching these things unfold in real time, you could just see human nature. I mean, there's so many different levels, but from a human nature standpoint, what did you see as a neuroscientist playing out? Oh, there were so many examples. That's a great example. And there's so many illustrations of the life morts and the neuroscience of aggression as it pertains to groups of people and in that incidence. So again, no one's going to engage in violence unless one of these life morts are tripped. So when you talk about group violence, either you have a leader who is going to rally you know, the nation or the group towards violence, in that leader's mind, the motivation for that will be one of these life morts triggers. Secondly, the individuals who have to carry out that violence will not do it unless they perceive that one of these nine life morts triggers have been tripped, right? The Vietnam War is an example of that. Vietnam War tore the country apart because too many people who were compelled to go fight there didn't feel like they had the, the justification. None of those life morts triggers were tripped in their mind. So, boy, that capital thing, the capital uh, violence just illustrates so many aspects. And it's so sad because there's neuroscientists and, you know, it's just not even in retrospect, I actually could see it happening. I even actually wrote in, in something publicly that violence as a consequence of the way this was playing out in the aftermath of the, re- the election was very likely, but the editors cut it. So understanding the triggers is necessary so that you can recognize these situations that are going to lead to violence, all right? Um, if it's one of these nine things, no matter what, among groups, deadly violence is, is a likely outcome. And if you have masses of people feeling that way, then you have mass violence. If you recognize that, you can control it. Uh, and the third important thing is we need to be able to recognize these situations so that we're not manipulated into violence, right? False flags, the Vietnam War later it turned out that the Turner Joy, the Navy ship was not attacked. That was, that was just a pretext for war. So people can be manipulated into mass violence by having these triggers exploited. So what did we have there? We had, uh, we had so many instances, we had people told to stop the steal, right? <laughs> um, that, the, that the election was stolen from them, right? That's the resources trigger, R. You know, you, you've been robbed. People will get angry. You had the, uh, the election was rigged. That's the O trigger. The rules of society are being violated. And, you know, there are others. There are so many in the T for the tribal trigger. There were, there were so many different factions. That's so obvious, but you know, there's deep factions in the country uh, surrounding that election that were also part of it, um, this us versus them mentality. Um, there's also, you know, you look at that, there's also the, the eye trigger. I mean, look at the diverse populations that were engaged in that, everything from people dressed like Vikings to former military. So, <laughs> you know, you had a very strange collection as well of, of, of people who felt like, you know, we're ignore our place in society. This is the eye trigger. We're, we're excluded. So they will join a group, like somebody will join a, a terrorist group or, a, or join a, a gang to be part of a, a society where they have a home. So we had all of these things 
playing there. And they were playing out way ahead of the, the incident. And then at the same time, you see why we have these triggers because we saw the Capitol Police engage in violence. And again, it has to be one of those nine triggers. It was many of those nine triggers. The police were defending the territory. They were defending themselves, uh, you know, the L trigger for themselves. E for environment, the people were invading, you know, that Capitol building where they were there to protect, you know, maintaining order in society. So those Capitol Police, I could go down the list. They were, they were really being pressed upon and showed remarkable restraint, I thought. Faced with this mob, I thought they showed a lot of restraint, but they selflessly engaged in violence because they had no other recourse at that point. So that was a great example of, of these life morts triggers playing out how they were manipulated by some people to incite a mob response. And also, you know, um, how this could have been managed better. So you just take those one at a time, you know, the election was rigged. Well, the way to handle that, and, and many of our senators did, said when the, the election was contested, he said, that's fine. You know, the president has his, uh, there's a process that we'll go through and we'll determine whether this has uh, been valid or invalid. That was the right way to manage it. You just wouldn't say, you'd get into an argument, say, no, the election was perfect. But there was a process you'd go through following the rules of society that we all agree on. And you can go down that line for every one of those triggers that they, they could have been managed in a way and diffused one at a time. And that didn't happen. And in part, it didn't happen because those triggers were exploited to incite a mob. I'm really curious, talking about things that can be preventative or steps that can be taken to work with these triggers and things that we can anticipate in society that will happen again in our society or other societies. What, what advice would you have based upon your research that could be helpful steps when you have a society right now where, as you mentioned, a lot of stress because of the pandemic, economic stress, stress, as you mentioned, in a personal level of loss of life. Mm -hmm. So many movements going on at the same time in addition to just the continued divisions within our society. So given that heightened stress, stress and sometimes this existential fear of survival mm -hmm. um, and experiences, how does an individual navigate that? And what recommendation would you have for people who are charged with doing this, whether they're in a political field or an institutional field to, to try to work with our society moving forward? Well, we all differ, you know, in, in, in cultures and in religions and whatnot, but we're all united by our biology. So I don't care what country you're in or what group you're in. We've got these same nine triggers. So we share this biology. And so we believe in, you know, having order in society, for example. We believe in, you know, not having robbery, not having uh, invasion of your territory. And so you can use these, these same triggers that can divide us are what unite us. And you can use them in that way diplomatically to pull people together. After all, you know, that us versus them is what divides people, but that same part of the brain, that same circuitry is what unites us. You can somehow perceive that, yeah, we're, we're different in this way, but we're all part of the same group. Then that 
same circuitry unites us. So, you know, you saw that happen right away after this Capital One. Yeah, um, we, we may have, we differ politically, but we're all Americans. That started bringing people together. Or we differ, but we're not going to tolerate breakdown society and invading and stopping the work of, of the government and those sorts of, so people united when they're uniting, they're pushing on the same triggers that were, you know, the same nine, nine triggers that could be used to, to divide us. So I think that that's really important to perceive what is causing the anger and violence and then see how we can perceive it in a way that those same triggers do what they're supposed to do. Because take the tribal trigger, everybody, you know, everyone laments how terrible tribalism is. And they don't realize that's what unites us as a country. That's, that's what got us to the moon. You know, <laughs> we're going to beat the Russians and the Russians were going to try to beat us. And, you know, that is the secret to human society is that we can suddenly coalesce into groups. You know, we're, geez, we put Japanese in internment camps, World War II, you know, and terrible war uh, Germany with Germany and Japan. And now they're our, our greatest allies because we have reformed our perception. And now that T-trigger that was dividing us uh, unites us. I'll give one last example. I don't know if people remember, but it's just a, it's very prominent in my mind. I may be too old, but when we had the, the refugees, Syrian refugees, and uh, coming by boats and were dying at sea, and there was, you know, all of this uh, outrage over the migrants and overwhelming Italy and whatnot in Europe. And then there was this one case where a photographer took a picture of a boy who had drowned and his father was there on the beach. You remember that picture? Yeah. That picture changed overnight the perception of that whole immigrant situation and the nations changed uh, their policies because we saw in that man mourning his son, you know, had drowned. We didn't see him as a Syrian refugee. We saw him as a father and that was us. You know, he was just trying to uh, care for his family and, and do everything that, that we would do. So suddenly the same thing that, our perception changed and now these same triggers united us because he was part of us. He was a father taking care of his kid and suddenly we could understand. And it really did change things. They changed the quotas of migrants. It's still a big problem, but they were no longer, you know, a, a villains or something, you know, or invaders. They were, they were just, uh, they were refugees and uh, we could see ourselves in that. No, thanks so much, Doug. I, I greatly appreciate you talking about things that could be perceived as though these horrible things that human beings are wired for, but it's a matter of survival, as you talked about, and that, that they could be very helpful things. And also your optimism for ways to address when it perhaps could go awry or are more heightened because of our environment or experiences and that looking at what might unite us. And I can also imagine looking at some of the triggers where there may be inequities, looking at what, all, what are those so that we can then come, and come to the trigger where we want equity, we want rules to be followed. So let's, what are those? And what mm -hmm. can we all feel comfortable with so that we aren't triggered by yep. um, some of those? Um, yeah, if you let them fester, the, the end result, it's unsustainable. The situation is unsustainable. Inequality in society, it's going to end in violence. So we need to recognize that. I would like to say one last thing we haven't touched on. I know we're out of time, but it's so important. And it, it, it relates to having people learn about this neuroscience of aggression and having it taught so that people understand 
and don't just say, oh, these people are bad or aggressive or whatever. Understand this. And that is the most important factor in aggression is gender. Males are aggressive. Uh, 95% of uh, prisoners are male. And this is biology. You know, we live in a different society now where the gender roles are very different, but our bodies and our brains are the result of evolution and a survival of the fittest world where evolution favored males, as it does in many species, you know, for aggression, uh, their bodies and their brains and their behaviors. A lot of that leads to violence and aggression by males. Um, and uh, that needs to be taught in school. And, and I'd like, I like that to be better understood. And also that's something that's changing because, you know, we don't fight with swords anymore, right? So <laughs> the world of the future is, is, it doesn't matter, uh, you know, what the, if you have a Y chromosome and you're flying a fighter jet, right? So technology is equalizing some of these evolutionary uh, legacies, but they're still there, you know, and, and they make sense because, you know, it doesn't make any sense for somebody to get into a physical fight with a, somebody who outweighs them by a hundred pounds. So Females face different threats, and so they have different neural circuitry to respond to those threats, and they tend not to engage aggressively because mostly that's stupid. It, you know, I wouldn't engage in a physical fight with another man who outweighed me by 100 pounds if I could help it. So I, I would like to see these things, that aspect also uh, understood, because that is, you talk about violence, that gender is the most important factor. So you're talking about teaching it the neurocircuitry, the, the dynamics of it, and a way to understand it? And then what would you hope for through that understanding that could help, as I'm hearing you, try to address that increase in violence? Well, I, I think, uh, you know, young boys should know that they have a hardwired propensity for violence. I mean, many animals do, many vertebrates, many, you know, uh, mammals do, and certainly males are more aggressive. And so, you know, you need to really uh, make males aware of that, boys aware of that, and they need to control it. And, and, and because nobody wants this regrettable outcome, nobody, violence is always the very last resort. And it's almost, well, not even almost, it's always regrettable. And sometimes there was no other recourse, but you still regret it, you know. And, uh, you know, all males have, have uh, uh, female you know, mothers and sisters and whatnot. So we don't want to live in a world that is ruled by, the, by our biology or by the rules of the jungle. But um, part of that is understanding that you're at greater risk uh, as a male of, of reacting to the situation with violence. And I can imagine, depending upon the environment in which you are growing up in, if it's a home, of violence or a community of violence, and you may be more susceptible. So being aware of that dynamic and how you might, as you mentioned, control or find ways to address that reactivity in your system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. So is there anything else you'd like to share? Um, well, I just I appreciate the opportunity to, um, you know, to, to bring this new perspective. You know, all the perspectives help. It's such an important problem. That's why I wrote the book for the general public is because this is so important. And again, I'm repeating myself, but um, you know, the violence that plagues society and the world, it's not by and large mental illness <laughs> by, by any means that, um, or, or crazy people or bad people. Um, 
And so we need to just face up to this. Um, why do we have this behavior? How does it work? And how do we control it? And how do we recognize that this is part of what makes us human and part of our success when, when it is uh, applied appropriately? One other statistic is I told you that 95% of all people in prison are male for violent crimes. 95% of all the people who have been awarded medals of heroism by the Carnegie Foundation are male. And 25% of them gave their life, many cases lost their life, 25% lost their life, many cases coming to the aid of somebody they didn't even know, you know. But um, so uh, let's understand how this works and let's, let, let's make it work for us. And when we see situations and groups or nations or, uh, where these triggers are getting pressed, let's uh, take a very deliberative approach to managing them. Um, yeah, and I can, I'm picking up um, in closing on something that you mentioned, until we as humans evolve in a different way, we, we are still, um, we are still wired as we are. And we so are. Being, being an understanding of that and what that means and trying not to be in denial, so to speak, or, or find it not comfortable. Well, it's a double-edged sword, right? So uh, I did interview, there are nonviolent societies. I interviewed the Jains, for example, that in Indian sect, and they sweep the path in front of them so they, don't, they believe in reincarnation and they don't want to step on an ant and they won't eat root crops, they don't eat meat, and they're strictly nonviolent. I interviewed Quakers. And so, you know, how, how it is possibly strictly nonviolent and they do it by structuring the society to avoid all these life morts. But there's also a cost to that, that I'm not sure that, uh, well, I couldn't, I couldn't accept. Uh, they would not, and I suspect many people couldn't. Now I understand them and I admire them and, and their perspective is all about separating themselves from the earthly desires to get to Nirvana. But if my daughter was threatened by a home invasion, I could not not engage in violence if I had to. Um, I could not allow, you know, violence in society to take place or criminality. Um, so, I mean, many people feel that way. We wouldn't have any police. We wouldn't have any military if, if that wasn't deeply ingrained. So um, we, it, is, it is a double-edged sword. Violence is a double-edged sword. Well, thank you very much. All right. For joining us on Think Peace Podcast. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for joining us this week for the Think Peace podcast, where peace crosses the mind. Please visit our website, www.thinkpeacepodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. Be sure to tune in next week. And remember to think peace.